You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 64. Hello, Metamorphs. We are back. This is The Raven and the Writing Desk. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, author, podcaster, and nano publisher, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. I'm here to share my fresh new fiction with you. So, let's move on to this week's story installment. This week I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 18 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began back in Episode 24, so if you aren't caught up, make sure to listen to the preceding chapters before continuing on with this week's episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have been waylaid by agents of the Vampire Crime Syndicate. Malcolm Ardvalos, the Vampire Prince, has commanded his people to capture the young noblewoman Sefi Hinlasos, whom Kate and David were in the process of transporting to Lightbringer headquarters. The detectives each agreed to surrender when Fisher, the Vampire's top enforcer, promised to spare their partner's life. Once Fisher had Sefi in his custody, though, he ordered his men to drop Kate and David into a deep pit under Trent Tower. This is the heart of Hunter's Hollow, the darkest and most dangerous sector of the street. Fisher has kept his word not to kill the detectives, but he has no doubt that the monsters who live in the Hollow will do the job for him. Kate and David find themselves at the bottom of a deep pit lined with foul-smelling mud. The vamps have taken most of their weapons, including the ritual dagger and sickle that Kate and David use for spellcasting. Without these focusing implements, the amount of magic Kate and David can perform will be extremely limited. An alien monster cries out somewhere in the darkness around the pit. Kate tries to cast a light spell, a very simple evocation, but she is hampered both by her fear and by the concussion she sustained earlier in the evening. After Kate fails twice at casting the spell, David puts his hand on her shoulder. He then sings a melody in Elvish, and Kate finds herself with enough strength to cast the spell. When it bursts into light, it glows not with the blue-green of her aura, but with the golden light of the sun. David tells her that the song he sang isn't a spell at all. It's a prayer. Together, they make their way down a mud-lined passage into the darkness. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 18 Continued Darkness was nearly a living thing in the hunter's lair. It crept back only reluctantly as Kate's light advanced, then hid in the corners and crevices, slipping back into the chamber behind them as they passed. Kate had spent years in the shadows of street level. She'd thought she knew what darkness was. Never before had she felt darkness so complete, so foul, 
or so full of quiet, lingering malice. The air was close, stale, and humid, and it reeked of a hundred scents she couldn't name. She shivered. Something was watching them. She didn't know where, or even if watching was the right word, but she felt it, there in the darkness, waiting. We have to get out of here. The hunters had been working on the depths of Trent Tower for twenty years or more, and the chambers Kate and David found there gave few clues to their original function. Doorways had been enlarged into circular holes in the walls, jagged and corroded around the edges. The walls were covered everywhere with thick brown secretions, which ran like soft mud in some places, and had hardened in others into a glossy, rippling shell, like cooled lava. In many places, the shell coating was shaped into a network of cells, like a honeycomb, only these cells were half a meter wide and twice as deep. Most of the cells they found were empty, but some were sealed over with translucent wax. Kate stood close to one, shining her light into the end. A dark shape, wet and glistening, writhed inside the cell as the light touched it. She drew back, stifling a cry, and choked back the bile that rose in her throat. "'Gods, this is their nursery,' she said. After a moment, she leaned back in with the light, perversely fascinated in spite of herself. The creature wriggled again, pressing limbs against the wax cap to shut out the light. The monster wasn't even hatched, and it was already the size of a large dog. No wonder the symbionts felt so much life energy here. But where are the adults? Out foraging, I expect, David said. His eyes were distant, and his ears twitched this way and that, listening for trouble. They'll be back before dawn with more food for the young ones. And if we aren't gone by then, we'll be added to the menu. Kate shuddered. She'd save her last two bullets for David and herself before she'd let that happen. Well, okay, they'll probably eat us anyway if it comes to that, but at least we won't be alive when it happens. David seemed to sense her line of thought. He put his hand on her shoulder again and gave it a brief squeeze of encouragement. The path to the exit will be well-traveled. We'll know it as soon as we find it. Then we just have to follow it up and out. Kate took a deep breath, through her mouth, since the vile stench wasn't fading in the slightest, then nodded. Up and out. Right. And how far is that, exactly? How deep is this hole they threw you in? And how many others have they thrown in here before you? David winked. You're the one who's supposed to thrive on danger, remember? Adrenaline rushes are one thing, Kate said, as they passed another cluster of gestating cells. This sort of... of creeping dread isn't doing anything for me, besides giving me high-powered nightmare fuel. But Kate did feel a little better as she moved on in her partner's wake. The banter helps. On some level, it felt insane to be cracking jokes in a place like this, but what was the alternative? Crying, or gibbering, or screaming, or just falling down and giving up. No thanks. Done enough of that for one lifetime. Humor was her last grip on what passed for her sanity. Well, that and the little ball of sunshine that floated along overhead. 
A gift from David's God, I guess, whoever he is. They had to go down before they could go up, it seemed. The tunnel led them to a place near the center of the tower where several floors had collapsed inward, leaving a deep, hollow shaft and a scree of broken concrete sloping down to the bottom. A cylinder of dirty gray glass protruded from the lowest part of the rubble pile, thirty meters across and ten high. The glass was dark and mostly opaque, but as they reached the bottom, Kate could see smudges of reflective paint deep below the surface, glinting back at her in warning hues of yellow, red, and white. This is the top of the reactor housing, isn't it? she said. The air was unearthly still for such a large space. She felt like she was in a mausoleum. That would be my guess, David agreed, looking up. He nodded at the top of the glass cylinder. The main power conduit probably came out of there. Kate didn't like the sound of that. How much radiation are we dealing with here? Hard to say. It depends on the fuel mix they used. After this long, a few hours probably won't hurt us, but... He shrugged fractionally. Got it. Least of our problems. My thoughts exactly, David agreed. Shall we? The hunters had burrowed dozens of tunnels into and out of this chamber. Apparently it served as a hub for their system of warrens. In many places the rubble had been piled into ramps to reach the higher floors, or hollowed out to reach the lower ones. The steeper ramps had been shored up with more of the hard brown secretions, which fixed the rubble in place and kept it from sliding around too much. Kate wondered just how intelligent the hunters actually were. Was this deliberate architectural design at work, or just a complex set of instincts? Kate and David spent some time inspecting the different passageways, looking and listening at the entrances. David had a far better idea of what to look for than she did, but Kate wasn't about to let her partner get too far away. That sense of quiet watchfulness still hung in the air, like someone was looking over her shoulder, but whenever she looked behind her, which was often, there was nothing there. At last, David chose a tunnel. One of the higher ones, but not the highest. The air smells a little fresher here, he said. If you say so. I've been breathing through my mouth for the last half hour. Always pay attention to your nose, David chided. It's the most sophisticated sensory organ in your entire body. Mine has saved my life more times than I can count. Kate took an experimental whiff of the air at the mouth of the tunnel, then nearly retched. I think mine wants to kill me. David smiled and shook his head. Come on, we'll be out of here soon. The path sloped generally upward now, twisting and turning, sometimes passing through the rectangular rooms of the original construction, but just as often formed into more organic shapes by the brown, plaster-like secretions. The path was generally broader, with very little of the soft mud underfoot, and with many cross-corridors branching off in different directions, Kate did not see any more nursery cells in this part of the Warrens, though she supposed that a nest this large must have other nurseries hidden somewhere in the tower. From time to time, David stopped to consult the tracks at an intersection, or to examine the markings on the walls. The elf had been right, though. It was obvious that they were on some kind of major thoroughfare, 
and Kate probably could have found the right way, even without David there to guide her. Not that I'd want to test that. It was the sound that warned her first. A scratching, scrabbling noise, not much louder than the rustle of leaves in a forest, but it stood out in the eerie stillness of the place. Then came the smell, an acrid tang like rancid butter, sharp enough to cut through even the general stench that filled the warrens. She stopped to listen, just as David did the same. She didn't like what her ears told her. It's coming this way, she whispered. David nodded once, then looked around at the nearby cross corridors. He found one that pleased him, with a hollow niche that might once have been a utility closet or a small bathroom. The ever-present brown secretions had rounded off the corners and obscured any defining fixtures, but there was still plenty of room for two people to get out of the way. He tucked himself into it and beckoned Kate to follow. Valus, he whispered, when she had pressed into the alcove beside him. Won't be anything fancy, Kate warned. Without her dagger to focus the magic, she couldn't do any sophisticated illusions unless she'd prepared them in detail ahead of time. She had a few ready-made spells like that. One of them involved a small army of police skimmers converging on her location, which was a handy trick when she needed to intimidate a group of street thugs. Nothing she had prepared would be terribly useful for misleading a pack of hunters, though. She settled on copying the brown plastery stuff, since she'd seen more than enough of that over the last hour to be familiar with it. She crafted a figment over the mouth of the alcove, a simple weaving of light and mana that made it look like a smooth, unbroken section of wall. From inside the alcove, the figment was hazy and transparent, allowing Kate and David to see out, but not, she hoped, allowing others to see in. She shrunk the sunball down to the size of a marble and tucked it into the alcove with them. Its light would add shape and structure to her illusion, making it seem more real. She had no idea how well the veil would work. Did the hunters even see in the same part of the spectrum as humans did? But there was no time for anything more. The sound and smell of the approaching creature had reached the intersection, barely four meters away. The miniaturized sunball cast only as much radiance as a strong nightlight, and very little of it made its way up the cross corridor to where the beast now stood. Kate saw the rough outline of the creature, a heavy, muscular-looking thing, with a dark, glossy hide that glinted at the edges like a beetle's carapace. Its long, shovel-shaped head stuck out beneath high, hunched shoulders, which connected to a massive pair of forelegs that were each as thick as her own torso. The back sloped down to two more pairs of legs, smaller than the first pair, but still large and muscular. Its hind end was hidden by the gloom, but Kate estimated that the creature was at least three meters long. If she'd been standing next to it, its head would have come up to her navel. The beast paused in the intersection turning its head back and forth. The uncertain light danced and flickered around its head in ways that Kate couldn't interpret. Something was moving there, but she couldn't tell whether it was a tongue or mandibles or something stranger. Eight little spots on its upper head flickered yellow-green as it turned toward the light. Were those eyes? She only saw them for an instant before they were once more hidden from view. 
The creature made a snuffling sound, low and heavy. Then it clawed the ground and lowered its head, snuffling again. It took a few steps toward Kate and David's hiding place, then repeated the scratch-and-sniff motion. David's hand tightened on Kate's shoulder. She eased off the safety on her holdout pistol, rested her finger alongside the trigger, and waited. The beast came closer, and now its features became clearer in the dim light. Yes, those were eight eyes arrayed across its broad head. Its mouth was hidden by a curtain of long, writhing tentacles, which seemed to be part elephant's trunk, part octopus arms, and part sea anemone. Oh, gods, where in all the hells did this thing come from? It was wrong, just wrong, and the closer it got to Kate, the more she was filled with a bone-deep sense of revulsion and horror. This doesn't belong in our world. The tentacles twisted and coiled in all directions, reaching down to the ground or up into the air. Each tentacle had what looked like a small circular mouth, which opened whenever the creature made its snuffling noise. Tasting the air? Tasting us, Kate thought. Oh, shit. The beast sniffed all around the entrance of the alcove, probing the edges of Kate's figment. It swung its head upward, splaying out its tentacles, and Kate got a view of a circular mouth lined with hundreds of rasping teeth. A long red tongue extended, ridged and muscular, and lined with serrations that spread out in a star-shaped pattern from the tip. The thing looked like it could carve its way into flesh like a knife through a pork chop. The tongue reached out, blindly, feeling its way past the figment and towards Kate's face. Something broke inside her. She reared back, slammed up against the back wall of the alcove, raised her gun, and fired. Pop, pop, pop. Three rounds went straight down the monster's gullet, a tight, controlled pattern born from years of training. The beast twitched, stumbled backward, then slumped to the ground. There were no exit wounds. The little bullets from the holdout pistol must have rattled around in its skull like pinballs in an old arcade machine. Black ooze began to seep out of the creature's mouth. A miasma of new scents flooded the tunnel. Bile salts, rancid onions, even, incongruously, something that smelled like green apples. David's nose wrinkled, and then his eyes grew wide in alarm. He grabbed Kate and pulled her out of the alcove, half dragging her toward the exit. I'm sorry, she said, stumbling after him. Her hands were shaking. I couldn't... Later! David barked. Right now, run! He suited actions to words, and Kate followed. It didn't make that much noise, Kate said, defensively. Maybe nobody heard it. You smell that? David pointed a finger into the air as he ran. The green apple scent was getting stronger, its comparatively pleasant aroma drowning out the general stink of the tunnels. What, the apple thing? Alarm pheromones, David said, sounding exasperated. Not much noise. Catherine, that creature's screaming. Kate blinked, then understood. Not everything used sound to communicate. She'd known that, but... But you panicked and spread that thing's juices all over the walls. 
Way to go, Kate. She grew her mage light back to full size and ran faster. The second monster gave them no warning. It pounced out of a cross corridor as soon as David drew near. Tentacles lashed out and grabbed him by the ankles, sending him crashing to the floor in a very unelven manner. Quick as a cat, David flipped over on his back, the boot knife already in his hand. The blade flashed out as David spat something in Elvish that sounded like a rebuke. The words hung in the air, ringing in Kate's ears, and the hunter drew back, its remaining tentacles writhing. Kate supposed that David's spellcasting was as hobbled as her own, if not more so, but the curse had bought her a couple of seconds of time. She took aim and fired again. The first round glanced off the creature's hide, but the second found a joint in the hunter's foreleg. It backed away into its hole, shedding more of that green apple alarm smell. Kate and David ran on. Two switchbacks later, the tunnel opened up onto a balcony that looked out over a broad, open chamber. She could see the ruins of a wooden railing jutting up from the ubiquitous brown stuff. Most of it had been gnawed down to splintered nubs. A glimmer of light shone somewhere in the darkness ahead, the distinctive yellow hue of sodium street lamps. It glinted off some dark but reflective material on the floor of the chamber. Tiles, perhaps, from a long-forgotten lobby area. She couldn't see the exit from here, but it couldn't be far. She headed for the steps, still recognizable under the hunter's secretions, and only slowed her pace slightly for the descent. Catherine! David caught her arm and pulled her to a halt. What? What is it? She looked wildly around at the wall beside her, no holes for an ambush, and the stairs beneath her. No missing steps, none of the slippery brown muck. Down there! Look down there! David snapped. When an elf gets angry, people listen. Even panicky illusionists escaping from a radioactive nest of eldritch horrors. Kate looked. The glimmers of light on the floor below were moving. One, then another, then three more beside those. Each of the glimmers moved independently of the others, which told Kate it wasn't the light outside that was moving. She raised her sunball and cast it out into the room, up near the ceiling, and froze. An entire swarm of hunters were coming across the open floor of the lobby, legs clacking and skittering, tentacles writhing, circular jaws gnashing. They shuddered at the touch of the light, but on they came, in a black flood that was filling the room and moving inexorably toward the staircase. And all through the chamber, those thrice-damned apple-scented pheromones filled the air. Kate choked back a fit of hysterical laughter. Death had never smelled so sweet. And that's the end of chapter 18. It doesn't look good for our heroes, does it? But now it's time to check up on Morgan Drowling, whom we last saw falling from the top of Kapler Tower. I told you things were going to start happening fast, didn't I? The story continues next week. Stephen King said, 
When asked, how do you write, I invariably answer, one word at a time, and the answer is invariably dismissed. But that is all it is. It sounds too simple to be true. But consider the Great Wall of China, if you will. One stone at a time, man. That's all. One stone at a time. So let's see how many stones I've laid this week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,040 words during the last two weeks, over the course of 12.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 575 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 60 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of July, I wrote 20,656 words over the course of 31 days, averaging 666 words per day. No jokes, please. I spent 31.25 hours writing last month. That's a slight improvement over July of last year. Compared to June, I increased my word count by 11%, and my writing time by 26%. Overall, July 2016 was my sixth most productive month since this podcast began. I'm now more than halfway through Chapter 28 in The Lost and the Least, and the manuscript is up over 95,000 words. I spent most of last week working on the novel, and then this week I took a break to work on other projects. I wrote a new blog post for the Patreon page, a sort of a state-of-the-podcast report, so my patrons can see how things are going. If you're a Patreon patron, you'll see that later this week. For most of the week, though, I've been working on a special project. If you've been around podcast fiction since the early days, 2005-2006, the names of T. Morris and Philippa Ballantyne will be well known to you. T. was one of the original podcast novelists and he and Pip both put out some excellent patio books in those first few years. If you came to podcast fiction more recently, you probably first heard about T and Pip through their New York-published fiction, especially their steampunk series, The Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. One of the ways T and Pip have promoted the ministry books is by hosting an anthology podcast, with stories from other authors taking place in the world of the ministry. This series is called Tales from the Archives. I'll have a link in the show notes. This fall, T and Pip will start airing the fifth and final season of this anthology series, and they've invited me to participate in it. So that's what I've been working on this week, a tale of the ministry called The Facts in the Matter of Gordon Chadwick. For this story, I'm going back to the traditions of 19th and early 20th century genre fiction and writing this in epistolary format. That means that the story is told through a series of letters and other documents. If you've ever read Frankenstein or Dracula, or some of the works of H.P. Lovecraft, you'll be familiar with this style of storytelling. I've never tried it before, but it seems very appropriate to the time period of the story, and I'm excited to stretch myself in this new direction. Look for this story to appear in the Tales of the Archives sometime near the end of the year. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author chris lester. 
The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing in this show and want to help me keep doing it, leave a review on iTunes, or become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's our show for this week. Come back next time for more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.